Welcome to another episode of The Dinner Table with Joe Sheehan. I'm your host, Joe Sheehan. Um, thank you for coming back and listening for what we're doing. Uh, we're trying to ex- educate and enlighten and have a little fun and just have a general idea of what's going on out there. Uh, last week we talked about the Declaration of Independence, especially the opening two paragraphs um, where we talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And um, again, I want to go further into that at another time, but uh, honestly, we are going to go in a different direction today um, because the research that I'm trying to do for that segment is uh, a little more extensive than I thought it would be. And honestly, I want to make sure that we are accurate in our information that we share on this podcast uh, because again, uh, this is meant to educate. It's meant to be out there. It's meant to be for you guys to give to your families and friends and encourage them to come on and uh, enjoy our show. Um, so let's see uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk a little bit about liberty. We're going to talk a little bit about free speech, a little bit about uh, sports, um, talk about some of the things that I'm reading right now. Uh, and how that those are uh, impacting some of the things that I'm doing uh, right now. Uh, It's pretty pretty awesome, uh, the things that are going on. Uh, As a coach, as a teacher, I try to read as much as I can. Uh, It helps me be a better teacher, helps me be a better person, helps me be a better coach. I really enjoy being a coach. I really enjoy being someone that young men look up to, to help mold and guide them, but also help them achieve their athletic goals. Uh, And I hope in helping them achieve their athletic goals, I'm also helping them achieve their personal goals. uh, One of the greatest compliments um, someone could ever, especially a former player, could ever pay me is um, to say that they're a better father, better husband, a better employee because I was their coach, that I taught them something. And I think that's shared among all coaches. I think most coaches that are out there, 99.9% of coaches that are out there, uh, especially at the high school level and lower, uh, feel that way. Uh, And again, because a lot of high school coaches aren't aren't making the big bucks. Um, A lot of coaches that are out there, uh, especially here in the state of Texas, Here in the state of Texas, in order to be a high school coach, unless you are coaching private school or you are coaching for um, a homeschool group that can pay you some money, uh, most of them are teachers. Most most of them have to be paid a teacher's wage. The UIL does not allow for stipend coaches. Uh, You're not allowed to be a part-time employee of a district. Uh, so again, it's uh, one of those things where, you know, it'd be nice, it'd be nice if we did that, but most of the time your coaching job is attached to a teaching position. And so you have to do both and you have to double dip. And so you're dealing with young people in the classroom, you're dealing with young people on the field. And uh, so being a coach here in Texas is, you know, it's a, it's an all around job. It's a, for many coaches, it's a 12 hour job. I know that sometimes in the news media, it, uh, it gets blown out of proportion. Some of these head coaching jobs getting paid six-figure salaries. Many of the hood coaching jobs uh, in the state of Texas also carry with it athletic directorships, especially in the smaller districts. So if they are an athletic director, not only are they having to run a successful football program, 
they're also having to run a successful high school athletics program, including female athletics. They're also having to run a successful middle school athletics program, including female athletics. So their jobs are incredibly busy. Uh, many athletic directors put in uh, 70 to 90 hours a week, uh, and that is a normal schedule for them, um, especially during football season. Uh, football season requires a lot out of the coaches. I know that as a fo football coach myself, um, during football season, I work anywhere from 80 to 100 hours, just depending on what my schedule looks like. Uh, and that also depends on what coach I work for. Uh, I've had coaches where we don't work on Sundays. We get to go home, uh, be with our families one day a week. Um, and we work every day, Monday through Saturday, um, getting people to, you know, perform in the way that they need to perform, watching tape, watching film, doing all of those things. So again, uh, when you calculate the amount of hours that coaches, head coaches, athletic directors have to work, compare that to the average teacher who, again, the average teacher does not work a 40-hour work week. If they do, they're not going to be a teacher for very long. Um, the average teacher usually works anywhere between 50 to 60 hours. Um, and so that's why teachers really don't get paid a lot. Everybody's like, well, you're off on the, you're off on the summers. No, you're really not off on during the summers. I know working for a small district, uh, every summer that I worked there, I had something I had to do over the summer. And then when I'm a coach, especially a football coach, uh, I, I have to start working in the middle of July. And then, uh, so that really means that, especially if school doesn't get out to the first week of June, I only have about six or seven weeks off. And if I'm not going to trainings during those weeks, either for football or for academics, uh, I know I, be, I went to two AP trainings during my time at uh, one of my high schools. I went to, did it during the summer, and each one of those was one week in length, and that was time away from my family. Um, and then I, I, as soon as I was finished with that, guess what happened? I had to start football. And uh, I worked for a gentleman who required us to work on Sundays. So I was working 100-hour weeks. Um, and it's exhausting. And so I don't begrudge any coach uh, that's out there their salary. I don't begrudge any teacher their salary. I think teachers make incredible sacrifices in order to be teachers, especially teachers who teach in small districts or in teachers in inner city districts, uh, especially where funding tends to go to overbloated bureaucracies instead of in the classroom. So uh, I think we need to be, as parents, we need to give our teachers a break. Okay, they're not only raising our children for us, but they're also having to raise their own. Many teachers have to sacrifice their child's, and especially coaches, uh, have to sacrifice their child's events, being able to go see their child play a game, being able to see their child perform in a concert, uh, to be at your child's concert. And uh, so again, before you start complaining about teachers and how much they make and teachers begging uh, for more money, we have to realize that teachers are um, necessary. We, we need teachers. We need people who are willing to make those sacrifices. But many teachers are having to make unreal sacrifices. Um, some school districts does, could uh, do with splitting up. Some school districts, especially in Texas, are too large. Uh, they could divide up and share and conquer, uh, get more money. Also, too, another thing that they could do is some schools are just ridiculous, you can hear my kids in the background, uh, in that, you know, they have four different administrators doing the same dang job. That's ridiculous. It shouldn't be that way. Uh, 
um, especially when you're paying that administrator a six-figure salary. Um, when, if, it's, if it's something that one person can get done, but yeah, they might have to work 50 to 60 hour weeks, then maybe, maybe two people could do that job. But do they really need to be making you know, $170,000 a year? You know, is, is that really necessary? Do, do uh, school board presidents and uh, superintendents need to be making three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000 a year? Uh, is that really something that should be making? And, and on top of that, you know, we got to look at funding modalities. Should, you know, a lot of public schools are paid by taxes. And so that's one of the reasons why they look at teachers and go, ooh, you know, what if, what if we got a bad teacher here? So education is kind of a um, more nuanced subject than most people would like to allow. But at the same time, you know, we have to be respectful to teachers. There, there used to be a time where teachers were respected. There used to be a time where teachers were given the respect that they deserve. Today, uh, it's very obvious. Just look at the kids and how the kids teach teachers or treat teachers. Um, I experience it on a daily basis. The disrespect, the lack of focus, the lack of desire towards an education. I, see, I experience it every day. Um, and it's sad. It's sad, really, uh, that parents either are too busy to take an interest in what their kid is doing or parents are simply using schools as daycares and so they just don't care uh it's just a place for them to send their kid you know so while they're at work well that's not what schools are for that's not what schools were intended to be in compulsory education i feel has kind of led us down that path well, that's my sermon on education, and it started by talking about coaching. Let's continue to talk about coaching. Uh, right now, I am coaching baseball. Uh, my baseball team just won a tournament championship. It was awesome. Uh, they did an amazing job. Um, and uh, I have been asked to be the hitting coach for the varsity team uh, this year. Um, I've been everything from a hitting coach to a pitching coach to a head JV coach, which I had to do both to an announcer in a booth. Uh, when you're a coach, you do all jobs. You are Johnny on the spot. And uh, you're a jack of all trades and a master of none. But I'd like to try to improve myself. And one of the ways that I'm improving myself right now is I'm reading a book by Zach Sean Brunn. And Zach, if you, if you ever get a hold of this, you know, give me a shout. You know, pay me, pay me a dollar for giving a shout out for your book. Um, but again, uh, I'm reading the, a book called The Performance Cortex, how Neuroscience is Redefining Athletic Genius. And this is actually a really good book. I'm enjoying it quite a bit. I'm not all the way through it, so I'm not going to give too much of a dissertation on the read. But I am already taking things that I'm learning. It's talking about reaction time. And as we all know as baseball coaches, if you're a baseball coach out there listening to this, and if you're not a baseball coach and you're just interested in sports or you've played baseball, we all know that the reaction time from picking up a pitch, identifying a pitch, choosing to swing, and swinging is about 400 milliseconds. I'm going to say that again. It's about 400 milliseconds. Okay, guys, that's faster than the blink of an eye, which is about 500 milliseconds. All right. As fast as you can blink your eye, you have to make a decision whether or not you're going to swing, which is one of the reasons why we work in hitting on not moving the head, not moving the eyes, being able to see the trajectory of the ball clearly. So you've got to be able to pick all that up, especially uh, regarding if it's a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. So how do people 
react to that. Different people have faster reaction time than other people. And so that's what this book's about. It's about the study of neuroscience and, and about how uh, there are two gentlemen out of Columbia who are tracking this and they're able to quantify uh, how fast a person can react and recognize a pitch and make a decision whether to swing or not swing. And Major League Baseball's teams are using this combined with Sabre Matrix to make decisions on players. And so we're going to start seeing, if this takes off, we're going to start seeing players that normally would have never gotten drafted. But because they have that reaction time and they have that ability to hit a baseball and recognize a pitch, they're going to be going, they're going to, be going to the pros. This may be one of the reasons why the Mets are, are happy with what Tim Tebow is doing in the minor leagues. Okay, uh, They may be looking at his reaction time, his ability to adapt, his saber matrix, his on-base percentage, all of those things. Uh, and, and it may not necessarily be a uh, media ploy to get sell more tickets. Okay, and so it's really good. And um, I've been able to take certain uh, concepts that I've learned by reading, uh, especially about how uh, neurological signals are sent to the muscles and how no reaction is exactly the same every single time because of what they call noise. I've also learned that uh, muscle memory is in the brain and it's a combination of different neurons that have grouped together in order to create that particular motion. And so in learning that, I was able to design some baseball drills, uh, some hitting drills, to really isolate certain muscle groups in, involved in hitting and be able to just focus on that neuro connection, that neurological connection, uh, and really build those muscle groups, really build that muscle memory more, more exact. Also learned that slow is better uh, in developing those, those groups, that moving, movement in slow is more accurate and so we're teaching the muscle group to react accurately by moving slowly. And so we were doing those things. And I'll be honest with you, if there are any baseball coaches out here uh, listening to this, I want, I want you to know um, that it worked. Uh, in the final game, our, our hitting in this tournament was absolutely incredible. We had several of our athletes, um, I, think, I think we had one athlete actually bat for 1,000 uh, in the tournament. Uh, every time he got a hit, every time he was at bat. So that's, I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible that I think our team average was a 500 um, or over. And so it, it's incredible the things that we saw this weekend based on just these, just one week of working with these types of drills, uh, especially the final game of the tournament. My one through nine, we went through the entire lineup in the first inning and every single one of them got a hit. So we were stroking the kid and he, was a, he wasn't a bad pitcher. He wasn't a bad pitcher at all. He had good velocity, good movement on his stuff. We were just seeing it. And I really feel like reading this book, again, it's The Performance Cortex by Zach Schonbrunn. And I recommend reading this. Uh, Schonbrunn is a sports writer, I believe, for the Sports Illustrated. And it's a really good read. It's, a, it's an easy read. It, it does get into the neuroscience, so it's a little wordy uh, for those of you who you know you are a little worried about studying something. But it's interesting. He keeps it really interesting. He keeps it tied to sports. He keeps it tied to the focuses. So if you're into kinesiology, into body movement, or you're just looking for that edge to help you get figure things out. Now, I will warn you, okay, if your players are used to a very certain type of batting practice, this is going to throw a wrench in it, okay, especially if you take those, those small movements uh, they're not going to understand why they're doing it. It's going to feel awkward. It's going to feel weird. It's going to feel strange. And the kids are going to resist it. 
be forceful with it. Tell them, you can tell them why, but they're not going to understand it, most of them. Just tell, you know, let them know that this is about getting small. It's about slowing down their reaction, slowing down for accuracy. We want to make them better hitters. We're isolating things, building muscle memory. They know those words. They've heard those words before. They've heard coaches say those words. And so use those words with them, okay? Again, they're going to be pretty upset about, you know, things changing up. But don't worry about it. They'll, they'll adjust. They're kids, you know, remember, you're the coach. They're the kid. Okay? And, uh, and let me know. Um, you know, uh, reach out. Um, you know, tell me, uh, you know, find, uh, find me on uh, Instagram. I, my Instagram is Joe underscore Sheehan. Or not Instagram. Sorry. <laughs> I don't do use Instagram anymore. Find me on Twitter. Uh, coach Joe Sheehan. All right? On Twitter. Let me know what you think. Let me know if it works for you. Um, it should be a really good thing. The next topic I think I want to talk about is uh, yesterday at CPAC, we had uh, the president declare that he was going to sign an executive decision um, enforcing free speech on college campuses. If college campuses wanted federal money, they would encourage free speech. And I know that some people, some of the never Trumpers, especially on the right, have exclaimed that, you know, you know, enforcing free speech is not uh, free speech. Well, yeah, it is. Okay. The Second Amendment guarantees free speech. That's an enforcement of free speech. Okay. So uh, saying that it's not is just just proves that those people that are on the right, either Trump can never those those never Trumpers on the right, uh, they either. Uh, never want Trump to ever be successful. Uh, they don't believe that Trump could ever be successful, or they themselves want to be able to limit speech on the left. And so um, that, those are all things that we have to wait, watch out for. But um, like last week, I want to kind of go into, I'm, I'm rereading On Liberty uh, by John Stuart Mill. This was written in the 1850s uh, by probably the father of libertarianism or at least one of the fathers of libertarian. Uh, this is every liberal's favorite uh, political science, political philosopher. Uh, this guy you know, wrote this in 1850. The liberals have used this for years, but I'll be honest with you, uh, the progressives probably don't like a lot of the things that he has to say. Um, because, again, um, he talks about liberty and what is a free society. Um, so let's, I want to kind of go through some of the things that I've been reading, um, and especially about free speech. Okay. Uh, free speech is pretty important. We had a young man get punched in the face at, um, a university of California campus. Um, that the gentleman who punched him is now in jail. Thank God. Thank goodness for uh, good people out there doing good things. Um, but now what I want to talk about is it's, it's something that I see uh, a lot. We are a free country. We are a pluralistic country. We allow the idea of differing ideas. Okay? Um, we allow people to have differing ideas. Um, I remember growing up as a kid, we used to say, you know, if we disagreed with somebody or um, if we didn't think what somebody was doing was right, we would say, you know, do what you want to do. It's a free country. Well, unfortunately, what we have now is we have a society where if you offend me, if what you say offends me, uh, if what you do offends me, you have to stop it. You are not supposed to offend me. That's offensive. Well, I don't know where that came from. 
I don't understand. It's on both sides of the aisle. Um, but that's not what this country was about. This country was not founded on the idea of lack of offense. If, if it, anything, it was founded on the idea that you're going to be offended. Grow up, buttercup. Pull up your big boy pants and let's get going. If you have an idea, debate it. You know, but un, un, unfortunately, we're now all about offense. You offended me. I'm offended. You can't offend me. I mean, it's one of the reasons why, you know, now we've got religious symbols that were that are memorials uh, to soldiers that have died being challenged by atheists. Oh, that symbol offends me. Oh, that offends me. You know what? Grow up, buttercup. Pull up your big boy pants and let's talk about it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look uh, again. Uh, we're, we're with John Stuart Mill. I've been reading this on Liberty. Uh, I really enjoy it. And um, there's some interesting things. Uh, one that I picked up, uh, one thing, uh, one issue that he takes on, he spends a, a lot of pages on the idea of liberty of thought and discussion. This idea that unless you're willing to tolerate opposing ideas in your society, your society cannot be free. That if you limit the, the marketplace of ideas, then you can't be free. Now, this flies in the face of both sides of the aisle because I know for a fact that there are people on the right that don't want people to live certain ways. There are people on the Christian right that don't want homosexuals to be able to live the life of a homosexual. They don't want Muslims to be able to be in this country. They don't want, you see what I'm saying? But there are people on the exact other side that do the same exact thing. Uh, your environmentalists, your scientists in university who refuse to allow anyone who believes in uh, intelligent design or in creationism uh, to have a place inside the scientific sphere, okay? Well, again, uh, especially now, with um, we have people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, out there talking about the Green New Deal, and you know, if you don't believe in environmentalism, then you're a liar and you're a climate denier, and all this blah blah blah. All right, well, um, John Stuart Mill said this to call any proposition certain, while there is anyone who would deny its certainty is, if permitted, but who is not permitted is to assume that we ourselves and those who agree with us are the judges of certainty and judges without hearing the other side. So in other words, this is environmentalism, right? This is, this is anybody out there that says, no, this is the truth, this is what... Okay, understand this. We're not saying that the truth isn't real. This isn't postmodernism, okay? Even though it smacks of some postmodernistic ideas, it's not really postmodernism. Because he goes on, he goes on later, explains that, you know, if, if the truth is the truth, it'll come out. So at least he's willing to admit that there really is truth. And then he goes on to say, there are... It is alleged certain beliefs so useful, not to say indispensable to well-being, that it is much the duty of governments to uphold those beliefs as to protect any other of the interests of society. In a case of such necessity, and so directly in the line of their duty, something less than infallibility may, it is maintained, warrant, and even bind governments to act on their own opinion, confirmed by the general opinion of mankind. It is also often argued and still oftener thought that none but bad men would desire to weaken those salutary beliefs, and there can be nothing wrong. It is thought in restraining bad men and prohibiting what only such men would wish to practice. 
This mode of thinking makes the justification of restraints on discussion not a question of truth of doctrines, but of their usefulness, and flatters itself by the means to escape the responsibility of claiming to be an infallible judge of opinions. But those who thus satisfy themselves do not perceive that the assumption of infallibility is merely shifted from one point to another. This sounds a lot like what we have on college campuses, okay? They have, they have created this dogma on college campuses, and so anyone who comes around challenging the dogma with other thinking, even though they believe that they've casted off that other thinking, and that other thinking is no longer valid, they've now made themselves judges of that opinion. And in doing so, they are now denying people from being able, and they're even accusing them of being bad people. If you believe this, you're a bad person. If you believe this, you're evil. We hear this a lot from the left. If you believe something, you're bad men. Okay, well, what is the result of that? And in point of fact, when law or public feeling do not permit the truth of an opinion to be disputed, they are just as little tolerant of a denial of its usefulness. In the opinion not of bad men, but of the best men, no belief which is contrary to truth can be really useful. And can you prevent such men from urging that plea when they are charged with culpability for denying some doctrine which they are told is useful, but which they believe to be false? Guys, he goes on. Again, I highly recommend this book. I highly recommend this book because, again, it's, it's, it's showing us these ideas of liberty. It's showing us what liberty really is. And I, I agree with a lot. I don't agree with necessarily everything that John Stuart Mill says, but I agree a lot with what he says. Because, again, take it to the basic structure of humanity. Human beings were created. All right? They were created by their creator. All right? We've established that in the Declaration of Independence. We know that the creator is God. Okay? And we know that through that creator, they were given inalienable rights. They were also given the ability to think. They were also given free will. All right? And if a person is not free to act on that will, then they're not free. So if God, the creator of the universe, the all-powerful, all-knowing, omniscient being, is willing to allow his own creation, even to the point of absolute rebellion, which happened in the Garden of Eden, right? Human beings were given the free will. Human beings were given free will. They were given the right to do whatever they wanted. Because God didn't want automatons to love him. He wanted people capable of truly loving him. All right? And what did they choose to do with that freedom? They choose to act wrongly. That's one of the reasons why we have evil in the world. Now, people might ask, well, why, God, why doesn't God intervene? Again, God chooses not to intervene all the time because, again, he gives us free will. He also expects his people and the people who believe him to uphold righteousness and to intervene when they can and have righteous laws, all right, to the best of our ability, because again, we're fallible. But we have free will, and to be truly free and to have true liberty in a country, we have to allow people to exercise that free will. And that, what is that going to mean? Well, that means that there's going to be some people out there who are going to live in ways that we disagree with. There are people that are going to believe things that we disagree with. There are going to be people who are going to say things that we disagree with. And we can't go around misusing the English language and calling everything hate, calling, it, calling people who say such things stupid, calling people, you know, 
we have to respect that they have wrong ideas. It's the same reason why, you know, you let your children, you know, do things up to a point. And where is that point? Well, again, Mill would argue that that point is when that action hurts another person, either willfully or unwillfully. Okay. And so that's where we draw the line when the other person gets hurt. That's one of the reasons why one of the restrictions on free speech is you cannot incite a riot. Now, if the other side manufactures a riot and blames what you say, you're not going to be held accountable for that, but you have to be able to prove that. All right, and that's one of the things that we're actually starting to see now is the left is starting to manufacture riots in order to prevent speech from happening. We saw it in the University of California, Berkeley's campus. We're seeing it all around. And that's one of the reasons why good institutions like you know, uh, Grand Canyon University, who's a Christian organization, was afraid to allow someone like Ben Shapiro speak. All right, um, now he's allowed to speak. But for a while, they made a decision they didn't want to allow that. Why? Because when he tried to speak at Berkeley, there was a riot on campus. All right. So we have to be careful. We have to use our wisdom. You know, and if you don't have wisdom, if you don't feel like you have wisdom, well, that's the first start of wisdom. And you can pray and you can ask God for more. All right, guys. Well, we're getting to the end of... um, the today's podcast again like i said as always right now i, I want to try to keep it around 30 minutes for you guys i know you guys have precious time i have precious time too i want to be able to spend it with my family today's my only day off this week I, we had a tournament this last week i was working 12 hour days every day um but you know what it was worth it it was fun well i hope you guys go out there and i hope you pursue your passions i hope you guys uh have fun uh, i hope this week is a blessing for you all I know it will be for me. I have another tournament uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Um, And so I'm excited to get through this week. However, Monday is going to be bitterly cold here in uh, Fort Worth, here in Texas. So uh, pretty scary stuff. Uh, Bitterly cold for us, for those of you, if you are not from Texas, if you're outside of Texas, is, uh, you know, highs in the low 30s. So, yeah, we're a little spoiled. But that's okay. Uh, we love our state and we love living here. Matter of fact, we just celebrated our Texas independence. Uh, it's a big deal for us, especially my family. My, uh, my wife is a direct descendant of Davy Crockett. And so Davy Crockett died in the Battle of the Alamo, helping fight for Texas independence. So uh, it's a big deal. Uh, that being said, uh, again, we'll move on next week. Hopefully next week we'll continue our series on the Declaration of Independence. But I hope today that you liked my little book review um, again, trying to keep it different, trying to keep it going, but I want to try to keep going every week. Uh, I realized last time we missed three, three weeks. So I don't want to do that, especially for people who are fans. I want to keep you, uh, happy. Uh, and again, uh, let me know what you think about, uh, today's podcast. Again, you can contact me on Twitter at coach Joe Sheehan or at Joe underscore Sheehan underscore TX. Uh, again, uh, thank you guys for listening. Let your friends know about this. Get the word out. Let people know that we're here talking about America, talking about freedom, talking about liberty, and hopefully bringing a new idea to the world and bringing change by talking about this stuff around the dinner table. God bless.